This morning we have one of our leaders. He leads a young adults. Uh, I'm sorry. They're not young anymore. Okay, no longer. I stand corrected. <laughs> they are no longer uh, young. They are just adults. Can you please welcome Brother Adrian Ariosa? Hey, good morning, everybody. So it's good that Pastor and Song opened with that because now everything that I say is his fault. <laughs> How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Uh, feedback. All right. So today we will be in Genesis chapter 22. You guys know that, that famous story in Genesis chapter 22? Anybody? Yell at me. Who, what's, what's going on in there? Who, who's got it? Pastor Danny's got it. So what, what goes on in Genesis chapter 22, Pastor Danny? <laughs> Pastor Danny, he skipped the entire Old Testament and went to the New Testament. So again, right, these are the men who sort of discipled me growing up. So now if I say anything, it's their fault. Now, in Genesis chapter, we're not going to read through the whole passage. It's pretty long, but it's a pretty famous story in the Bible. It's, um, it's when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son. After waiting for so long, all of a sudden God comes and he says, bring your son, your only son, sacrifice him to me. And that's a pretty famous story in the Bible. So the title of our message is, Surrender your Isaac. Surrender your Isaac. So we'll discuss that more in a bit. Um, we will talk about four. We have four points today, so it's a pretty long sermon. Um, probably hour and a half, two two hours. You can take a break in the middle. Um, first point we're going to talk about. We're going to look at certain uh, verses from Genesis chapter twenty-two. First thing we're going to talk about is Abraham's test. So why was Abraham tested? What, what was the test for? And why are tests good? We shouldn't be afraid of tests, right? Amen? No, no, no. Nobody, nobody likes tests. I don't like tests, but we'll talk about them uh, and why they are good. Uh, secondly, we'll talk about Isaac. So the title of the message is Surrender Your Isaac, right? Anybody here with a boyfriend named Isaac? You should surrender him now. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, Isaac represents something, and we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about idolatry. And then, uh, it's interesting too, the songs Sarah sang, they, they're all related to the message I'm uh, preaching today, so that's God working for you. I didn't talk to her about this message. Lastly, oh no, third point. The third point is, we'll talk about the Lord will provide. This is sort of Abraham's uh, mantra when he was sacrificing Isaac. We'll, we'll take a look at his condition, his heart's condition, while he was about to go and sacrifice Isaac. And then lastly, we'll talk about how we surrender our own Isaacs. Okay, let's uh, open up in prayer first, and we'll get to work. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, for allowing us to gather and just talk about you. Uh, Lord, we need to hear from you today. We need to see you today with with, with our own eyes, and we need to be changed by you, by your presence, Lord. Um, Lord, please speak through me, Lord. Um, you know, Lord, 
I'm not worthy. Nobody's worthy to speak about you, Lord. But, Lord, we need, we need you. We need desperately to hear from you. So speak to us, Lord. Speak to all of us. We need you, Father. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. Okay. So Abraham tested. Um, students, who likes tests? It's easy. You just have to be confident and study. That's it. That's the end of this. Nobody likes, nobody responds to tests. I've been saying the word test for five minutes now. Nobody's responding. So who likes tests? Nobody, right? I don't like tests. I didn't like tests before. Um, Who here failed their um, first license exam? Okay, that was terrible, right? Didn't fail. Um, Okay, nobody likes tests, right? There's this... Do you know why we don't like tests? I think our culture doesn't understand the concept of grace. So whenever we hear the word test, it has something to do with proving yourself, right? Proving yourself worthy of, of something. So when somebody tests you in our, in our culture, in our worldview, it's pretty negative because then you have to, okay, I got to prove myself. So I have to muster all my strength and do something great so that these people will like me. They're testing me, like TJ's testing me now. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But here in Scripture, the way God tested Abraham was different, right? It's different. Um, Let's read this passage here. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So, was Abraham being tested the way we would test people in our culture? Was he? Um, No. Right? No. Um, the, the very definition of the word test, it has to do with um, proving something. Right? From, from the standpoint of someone who makes things, for, from someone who is a craftsman, when you test something, it's not necessarily about the thing proving itself, but it's more about you and your work. Right? For example, if I'm building, if I'm since I read Moria, it made me think of Lord of the Rings. So if I'm forging a sword, all right, um, when I test the sword, it's not, I'm not saying to the sword, sword, prove yourself to me. Right? It's not, sword, you better be sharp or I'll throw you away. No, I'm testing, actually, what am I testing? My work. I'm testing if the sword I forged was sharp and can cut through orcs like butter, right? There are no nerds in this church. Um, <laughs> um, I will re- sh- should I start referring to Ben-Hur and stuff from the 70s? Maybe it'll... Uh, no, okay. Um, Game, of Thro- Game of Thrones. Uh, like, anyway. Uh, so Abraham, right? That's why we shouldn't fear tests when it comes to God. Because God wasn't testing Abraham so that Abraham proves himself. 
When we are in a relationship with God and God tests us, it's not so that God can come and say, oh, now you, you know, I, you know, I saved you on the cross and stuff like that. Now you better prove yourself to me or you're out. So if you've been paying attention to the sermons um, the last few weeks, how many times has Abraham failed God? A lot, right? Major. How many times did he lie? He actually had, he had this, I was listening to Pastor Insong's sermon last week. It was interesting because Abraham already had a script with his wife whenever they went to a new city. Okay, tell everyone you're my sister. Right? They kill me. Right? He had all these schemes that really showed that you know, he, wasn't, he wasn't a good guy. Right? He wasn't really this great man of faith. Um, you know, when his wife told him, hey, I think you should sleep with her. Oh, yeah, I'm in. Right? He, she didn't even finish her sentence. He was in. And then when things got rocky for Hagar and Sarah, what did Abraham say? She's just our servant. Do with, do with her whatever you want. He's, you know, he didn't take responsibility. So he wasn't a great guy. And you know, if it were up to human standards, we would have flunked Abraham a long time ago. So in Genesis 16, you remember, do you guys remember he, God gave him a covenant saying, I will bless you. I promise to bless you. I promise. Immediately after that, that's when he starts doing all these, you know, terrible things. If you read between the lines, they're pretty bad, right? Um, you know, the, uh, that last king, he could have died because of Abraham, because of his lie. So he was that shady. Um, he already failed several times, but then what was God doing? Like this, this picture we have here, what you notice was God was actually working in his life. He was slowly hammering him. He was forging him, right? He was changing him from Abram to Abraham, right? He was going to be the father of the people of faith, right? Us. He was going to be the first, um, so what was God doing? God was, when he tested Abraham, when he asked him to give him Isaac, he was testing his workmanship. He was building up Abraham's faith. He was building up Abraham's love for him and Abraham's worship of him. So that's why tests are good as far as we're concerned. We're concerned, sorry. When, when we Christians are concerned, even though they're terrible, even though they're frightening, God, whenever God puts us to the test, he's about to reveal something to us about himself and about his work in our lives. And you'll be surprised. Uh, when you go through a trial, a major one, and you know God is there, you have this peace that no one can explain. You have, you have this, this strength, this courage that when, when unbelievers see, when people outside of church see, they'll be amazed. Um, so tests are good. Right? Let's not be afraid of tests. So uh, normally, when, when I was younger, when I was you know, a teen like Nate, are you still a teenager, Nate? No, you look, like, you look young. That is good. Um, I was always afraid of this verse because, oh, now God's going to make me give up something or he's going to put me through something terrible. When you are in a relationship with God and he tests you, it's great. Trust me, it's terrible, but it's great. All right, don't be afraid of tests. Now, what imperfection was God hammering out of Abraham? Why was he testing him? Why was he proving him? And why was it Isaac, of all people, 
that he had to sacrifice. He could have sacrificed everything that he owned, right? He could have, God could have told him, just take Isaac and go and, and your wife and live afresh without all your riches. No, but he chose Isaac. It was very specific. Why? Right, let's read this verse. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Um, why do you think it was Isaac? Because the verse says, he loved him. He loved him. He loved him dearly. Um, that's the danger for us when we love stuff, when we love people, when we love things that are good. We tend to turn those things into ultimate things. We turn to we make them into idols, right? So what is an idol again? I think we've discussed it. I love discussing this because this is something that I it changed personally changed my own life. And also is something I still struggle with every day, right? So what is an idol? An idol is anything that takes the place of God, right? So normally, you know, we, we discuss that in church, and it seems to lose its bite, right? Oh, something that takes the place of God, central, and it becomes a, just a catchphrase. But let's talk about that. What is the place of God exactly in our lives, in our hearts, right? What is his place? God is our object of worship, right? God should be, rightfully so, the object of our worship. So that begs the question, what is worship, right? And I, I believe I've discussed this before. So the idea of the word worship comes from, two words, comes from worth and ship and shape worth shape so anything that you place value on in turn gives you value right for example if i place value on the lakers right if i put my little flag on my car and place value on the lakers they in turn give me value if they win they win a championship, right? If I'm a fan and they win, what, what happens? You know, I get bragging rights on Facebook, right? I can say, the Lakers won, we won. It's pretty funny. We won, right? That's sort of how idolatry works or worship. Sorry, not idolatry, worship. When you put value on something, it in turn gives you value. It begins to form your identity, right? So... Here's the thing. We're all worshipers. We all worship, even if you're not a Christian. Um, I remember I had a classmate who was from China. He was an exchange student. And he used to tell me, because we would talk about Jesus, about God. And he would tell me, you know, Adrian, in China, we don't really have religion. But I noticed that the party, the Communist Party, is the religion of China. He was, he was telling me, oh, we have songs about the party. You know, you, you work hard for the party, for the glory of the party. You build up the communist party, stuff like that. So in a way, we have a God, and it's, our salvation is in the communist party, in the party. So we all do that. Even if there's no figure of deity, if there's no Godhead in your worldview, the way you see things, you will worship something. 
Uh, for some people, they worship their careers, right? I have to sacrifice everything in order for me. If I don't make it to the top of the mountain, I'm nothing. Uh, some people, they worship their family, right, their kids. Oh, if my, my kids don't turn out okay, I'm nothing, right? You draw, you become someone, you become something when you worship something, right? What's the problem with, with that if it's not God? What's the problem with idolatry? The problem with idolatry is it will kill you and it will kill the thing that you're worshiping, right? Idols, what they do is they demand that you sacrifice yourself, right, on the altar. For instance, let's talk about that whole family as an idol thing. If we make our families, our kids, our spouses, whatever, if they, we make them into an idol, first and foremost, what we do is we turn that person that we love into this idea, right? Let's say Nate becomes my idol. Idol kita, Nate. <laughs> I say, oh, Nate is so great. Nate, so uh, <laughs> no, Nate will be my idol. I'm gonna form ideas about Nate. Oh, Nate is so good. I really care about him. He should live like this. He should look like this. He should drive this car. Oh, it wouldn't be great if Nate wear uh, would wear a scarf today. Oh, his socks should look like this. So I'm building this this idea about Nate, and then consequently I start giving him gifts like, oh, here's a nice sock for you, Nate. Um, It'll, it'll make you look cool. So slowly but surely, I'm falling in love with this idea about Nate, and I don't love Nate. I don't talk to him. I don't hang out with him. I just think about you know, what he will become in my expert hands, right? Pretty soon, our relationship will break down. Everything will fall apart. You know, I, I begin to yell at him for, Nate, why can't you be like this, Nate? I have this idea about you. Why can't you be like that? Pretty soon, the relationship falls apart. We're strained. Why? Because I placed ultimate value on this idea I have about Nate. That's what we tend to do in our families, right? You better look like that kid. Otherwise, you know, I'll die if you... Stuff like that. You better clean your room. Well, you should clean your rooms. It's just filthy if you don't... Uh, (laughs) I looked that way because I saw kids over there. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Let's consider Abraham for a moment. What did Isaac represent for Abraham? He wasn't just his son, right? He was the son of promise. See, for Abraham, what Isaac could have begun to represent was this idea that he was going to become great. Right? That's what God promised him, right? I'll give you a son, and through him all the nations would be blessed. If God gave that promise to me, I would probably be thinking about that. I would be thinking, oh, I'm going to be great someday. It's just me and all these cities named after Adrian. All these holidays named after Adrian. Guitars, cars named after Adrian. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you were here. We're here. That's what we would do. We would, we would take a good promise that God gives to us and we would turn it into something else. We would put it into the place of God. So the danger for Abraham was that he was about 
he could potentially have taken Isaac and made, made a bigger deal out of him than he should have, right? Um, in this scenario where, where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, he's doing surgery on Abraham's heart, right? He was proving the work, the, the work that he started, and he was eliminating the potential of Isaac being an idol. He wanted Abraham to see where his heart was, right? So let's look at Abraham's heart. How does he pass the test? He doesn't really pass the test uh, on his own merit, but let's look at the condition of his heart. You know, how does he get through this test, right? Oh, here's a verse that, um, sorry, I forgot to, to go here. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 describes our heart pretty well before we go to Abraham. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So I think that's, idolatry is a byproduct of the fall. We become, we've become idolaters simply because our hearts are broken, simply because, you know, our forefather, Adam, chose poorly, right? It's just our nature. Uh, John Calvin says this, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. So it's, it's pretty sad, but it's true. That's, that's what, you know, that's the condition of our, oh, am I out of slides? Uh-oh. Okay. We'll wing it. <laughs> Let's stop on that one. This one's pretty potent. Let's stay there. Okay. So, I am out of slides. All right. I shall recover. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the, to the <laughs> sermon. Um, so how does Abram pass the test? Let us, now you have to open your Bibles and your smartphones. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. Let's go, we're, we're going to read quite a chunk here now. Let's read verses 3, verses 3 to 8. All right. You got there? All right. So, chapter 3. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, on Isaac, his son. And he took his son and the fire and the knife. And uh, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so he was carrying a torch. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So, both of them together. So, what do you notice about Abraham? When God commanded him 
commanded him to go and sacrifice Isaac, what does he do? He does it first thing in the morning, right? Uh, there was no, oh, I should spend three days hanging out with my son and cherishing every moment. No, he just decides to go. His heart was set, right? He, he, was, like a, he was like a fighter going into the ring. I'm, I'm in. I'm set. Right? I've trained. I'm, it's done. I'm going. That was the sort of determination that you see in that verse in verse 3 when he rose early in the morning. He was just sold. He was going to do it. And in, verse, and in verse, um, verse 7 and 8, so Isaac, they're walking, right? They, Isaac actually, um, some scholars say, he was a pretty big boy. Right? He experienced God's kindness in his life. He saw that even though I lied, God didn't kill me. Even though, you know, I made a mistake with, with Hagar, he was still there. Even though we laughed at him, we laughed at what he said, he gave us a son. So at that point, he was so sold on God, right? Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Right? In, he considered, this is what was going on in his mind, according to, hmm? Oh, okay. <laughs> according to, uh, am I running over? So, in verse 19, it says here in Hebrews, this was what go, was going on in the mind of uh, Abraham. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this was what on was what bleh, was what in Abraham's mind when he when he uh, when he was about to sacrifice his son. According to Hebrews, he was thinking that God cannot be possibly ever be a liar and be untrue to himself. If I kill my son right now, he'll just bring him back to life. See, because he knew the character of God. He trusted God at that point to where he was willing to do crazy things for God because he knew that God was good. Even though it seemed like he was asking him this weird thing that seemed evil, right? he understood that no God would, you know, even though he's asking me this, he would never actually let it play out this way, right? And we all can become like that, right? We all can have that same courage, that same conviction that Abraham has, that Abraham showed here. Um, also, in James chapter 2, it says here of uh, Abraham that, he was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham complete, uh, believed God, and he was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So the interesting here, thing here is that the faith of Abraham was a project of God, right? It was his workmanship. He 
he built up Abraham's faith from zero to, to this, to Genesis 22, where he would he'd be, he'd be willing to give up his own son. But along the way, Abraham also, he also cooperated with God, right? He was, God was giving him little things, little tests, little, little things to obey, and he was, he was also doing his part, right? So the interesting here, thing here is that when Abraham actually obeyed God and gave up his son, he sort of demonstrated the work that God has done in his life, right? His obedience was his own obedience, right? He really obeyed God. It wasn't like God brainwashed him, but he obeyed because he saw the character of God. God slowly but surely made sure he knew that he was good, that he can be trusted, right? So, so what did Abraham, why did he, how was he able to do this? He had an anchor. His life was anchored on the promise of God. And he had an experience of God's abundant grace. So he was able to pass this test, pass, sort of. So now we go back to the title of the message, right? How to surrender our Isaac. So, so all of us here... So all of us here, thank you, Pastor I. Um, so all of us here, we all have our own Isaacs, right? Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17 says that clearly, all our hearts are flawed. And no one is good, the Bible says no one is good, not even one. All sin falls short of the glory of God. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we join God in the work of ridding ourselves of Isaacs or idols, right, in our lives? Um, let's look at this verse, chapter 14 in Genesis 22. So Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So this story wasn't just all about Abram and Isaac and Abram sacrificing his son. It was a foreshadowing of something greater, something that is to come. Right? What was that thing? Right? On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God himself will provide the lamb. Um, this whole story is foreshadowing the day that Jesus would come and he would go up on the mountain. Some scholars say it was in the same area, same mountain region where Isaac was brought up. Um, God would go up on the mountain and he would sacrifice his own son. Right? There would come a time where God would not spare his son. It was a foreshadowing of what he was about to do. Right? Actually, Isaac was a foreshadowing of Jesus. I remember, um, I remember I told you earlier that he was a big boy. He, was, he could carry the wood. The firewood was, that's a lot of wood to burn a human being. That's pretty substantial, right? Um, he was willing to go. That little tense exchange where he asked his father, Father, where's the lamb? Where's the, where's the ram? Why is there, there's only fire and wood and me? Where's... He knew, he knew that he knew that he was gonna die. But then God stopped it. Right? God stopped it. No, you're not gonna do this. Why did God stop it? Why did God stop Abram? Right? Because he was gonna do it. 
you don't have to do it, Abraham. I'll do it. Right? Um, there was this story, there was a shooting in San Bernardino recently, and I read an account from one of the survivors. Um, one of her co-workers, um, this big guy, he, he didn't make it. He died in the shooting. What she said was, she survived because of him. And this is what she remembers. When the shooting started, he hugged her, went on top of her, and these were his, his words. It's all right, I got you. So when God stopped Abram from sacrificing his son, that was pretty much what he did. It's all right, Abram, I got you. And I got the whole world. Right? Because there came a time 2,000 years ago from where we are, like Isaac, a son went up the mountain and he was willing to be sacrificed. And that time, the knife wasn't stayed. The hand wasn't stayed. So, how do we surrender our Isaac? First thing we need to do is we need to see that God surrendered his own Isaac, his own son. When our hearts are captured by that, by that love that says, don't worry, I got you. You know, you, you'll fail time and time again. Your heart will create idols. You will worship other things, but don't worry, I got you. When we see the beauty of that, we, we, we can begin to surrender Isaac. So we can begin to understand that, hey, there are things in my life, right, that are taking the place of God, and it shouldn't be, right? Because those, those things, they won't, they won't love you the same way. Those people won't love you the same way that Jesus will love you, right? No one will love us the way God does, right? And, and when, we see, when we see moments like that in, in this wicked, broken world where people are willing to die for other people, we see glimpses of what God's character is, who he is. Right? We have to fall in love with the God who surrendered his own Isaac. Right? And this is something that you cannot do. You can't go into your room and open your Bible, keep reading it. Oh, I'll make myself fall in love. It's not going to work that way. You have to ask him. Right? And it doesn't matter if you've been in church forever, your first time here, whatever. Um, it has nothing to do with being in church. It has something to do with actually meeting God for yourself, right? If you haven't met God for yourself, it doesn't matter if you've served in ministry, all that good stuff. It, you won't be saved. Right? Because our salvation is our friendship with God in the end. It's not, it's not even about going to heaven. It's about knowing and loving the one true God. Right? If you don't have that, talk to him. If, right? So, know that God surrendered his Isaac. And under, another thing that can help us and will help us and that God designed to help us remove the idols of our heart is discipleship, right? When we practice gospel intentional discipleship, we can help ourselves be rid of the things that take the place of God. What do I mean? Um, my wife and I, bless her, you know when you get married, young, young men, you instantly have an accountability partner. She will point out to you your mistakes every day. <laughs> no, you're too harsh there. Oh, why did you do that? Oh, your hair. 
Uh, <laughs> no, we were talking. I love my wife. She's beautiful. The most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> learn, learn from that. <laughs> okay, um, we were talking about how even back home in the Philippines, we, back there, discipleship culture is predominant, right? It's Pastor Danny's fault. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, we, back there, um, so here in our church, you know, I've, I've seen Pastor Danny and Pastor I, they, 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 they're teaching us how to have this culture, this mindset. Well, over there, it's pretty well established. But I think the danger when it's pretty well established that you meet together as a discipleship group is it, be, it can become a social club, right? You meet together and you just, you know, what we've noticed was some of the groups we've been in in the past, um, now they're more like, um, you know, they're just sharing our daily bread stories and stuff like that. And there's nothing, there's no deep work really going on, right? Because we're just hanging out and we're, oh, I can't believe how I, obedient I've been this week. Can you see this? It's all fluff and show. But when we practice this idea of intentional gospel-centered discipleship, that's when you actually sit down and really talk about your lives, right? There's no, you take off the mask of, um, you know, Christian pleasantries and you just, you just, Sit down. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about you. How are you doing? Right? And I included the word gospel-centered discipleship there, gospel-centered. See, the danger is when you do practice intentional discipleship, which is you really get into each other's lives and all that good stuff, if it's not gospel-centered, you can become a legalistic group. So the, the polar opposite of the social group is the legalistic group, Right? Because all you're doing is watching out for sin in your lives, and that's it. It's unpleasant to be in those groups. I used to lead one of those groups. I was a high priest, <laughs> right? And I would call my, you know, the, 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 guys, uh, the guys we went to college with, Doki and I, back in the Philippines, I would call them, and I would ask them about their sins. Did you sin? Hmm? <laughs> so... It was terrible because now I talk to the guys, you know, years later, we all finally got saved. <laughs> and uh, I would talk to them, yeah, you were so emotionally manipulative, man. What's wrong with you? Um, it, it, it was not good because God wasn't glorified. And when you do legalistic type of discipleship, what happens is you just rearrange your flesh, right? You rearrange your flesh. What you do is... Okay, now you put the good stuff, the little, the little that there is, the good parts of your flesh out, and you hide the bad stuff. When we do practice intentional gospel-centered discipleship, what happens is this. We sit down, right? We study God's Word, and then we look at our lives. We say, okay, what part of my life reveals to me that I love something more than Jesus? That's, that's what it is. When we sin, right, we have an idol behind it, right? We lie because we want to cover up something. We, we take other people's stuff because we want something else. We're worshiping something else when we sin. That's what happens. And so this is what we're trying to do in, in our discipleship group. That's what we're trying to do now is we try to talk through real-life issues, and we try to put it alongside Jesus, right? Um, 
you know, you look at your life and you see you're living a certain way that's not in accordance with Scripture, eventually you figure out that, okay, that part of me doesn't believe that in Jesus I have everything. So, that's what we do, right? We, so, to recap, sorry, it was a pretty messy sermon. It's Pastor and Song's fault, right? <laughs> so, tests are not bad. They're good, right, for the Christian because it is a test of God's workmanship, right? And what does Isaac represent? Isaac represents idols, right? How do we get rid of idols? How do we surrender our Isaac? We have to first see that God surrendered his own Isaac for us. And we have friends to help us along the way. We have discipleship groups. Right? So, uh, thank you for this time. Thank you for listening. It was awkward, but it was good. (laughs) Um, So, we're we're about to have Lord's Supper, but let me pray for you. Let's pray for all of us. We, We all need this message. I need this message, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your love for us is not based on what we do, but based on what you've decided already in ages past, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen us not because we were good, but you are good. Lord, you've chosen us because you are kind. And Father, I just pray for all of us here. Lord, your word says that we are broken and we are idolaters, Lord. We worship things other than you. I pray, Father, that I pray, Father, that all of us here find you beautiful, Lord. That's the only thing that can save us, Lord, from from our idols. When we finally see, Lord, that you are the beauty, you are the love, you are the one that we are chasing after in all these weird things that we worship, Lord, in all our idols, Lord. It's really you that we want. Lord, I pray that you free us, Lord, from our love of things, from loving people too much. From, Lord, help us, Lord, overcome our idols, Lord, so that we can finally worship you, so that we can finally live, Lord, and really enjoy life. Father, thank you so much again for this Sunday. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, Lord, to, to hear from you, to, to know that you are good, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this time again. In Jesus' name, we humbly pray. Amen. Amen.